Hello, friend. No puppet, no puppet. You're the puppet. Oh, oh, well, hold on a second. Hey, Henry, I guess we're here for the podcast and you're not randomly calling me a puppet or anything, are you? We're all puppets, Margaret. And, uh, <laughs> you know, our corporate overlords are the ones pulling the string. <laughs> so, of course, hello, friend. This is the Mr. Robot podcast co-hosted by yours truly and Henry. And we're here to talk about the latest episode in this crazy series. It's episode number nine, and it's essentially called Stage 3.Torrent. And it's written by Kyle Bradstreet and directed by Sam Esmael. Torrent file is the kind of files that are not shockingly used by services like BitTorrent that store pieces of files all over and then create a distributed peer-to-peer system. What did you think of this episode, Henry? I really like this episode. A lot happened. A lot of different threads come together. I always like episodes where you see payoffs for things that... The writers have been trying to seed or plant uh, so we can see, you know, relationships between uh, Darlene and the FBI agent kind of uh, play out um, and other various things. I thought it was it went a long way to sort of setting things in place for the the season finale, which I cannot believe is is coming so soon. And of course, the whole episode started off with a pretty uncomfortable flashback. So we're taken back to the glory days of all safe and we get to see some familiar faces including Gideon doing what is uh, for him I guess a hard sell for eCorp to work with his security firm yeah um, and you see some of the dynamics that take place in cor- corporate culture which I think is one of the things the show does really well is it kind of holds nice mirror up to modern corporate culture and a particular type of corporate culture like working at a law firm in Wall Street for instance it's very similar to the type of corporate culture that I see on display here the characters I think especially Terry Colby who's in the room who is just foul mouth in addition to being incredibly unpleasant I mean he's a pretty I would almost say stereotypical kind of person you would encounter in those Wall Street type firms in Manhattan for sure yeah you know someone with a, a big personality a big mouth and and a big paycheck or a big, uh, you know, playbook, right? Uh, and this scene, I kind of view through the lens of the, the things going on with the Me Too, you know, hashtag Me Too, and the various uh, scandals around people doing sexual harassment in the workplace, and the gender dynamics and politics on display there. It was interesting to view this episode through that lens for me. What about you? Well, it was because, you know, it's really funny, you know, and I know you're referring to the scene where, first of all, Philip Price is immediately taken by Angela when she enters the room, which we should talk about. But then Terry Colby orders Angela to get him some coffee. And it's so funny that earlier in the day before I saw this episode, I was talking to a friend of mine and she was sitting in a meeting and they're not even paying her, which is a whole other issue. And she was literally the person they turned to and had her take notes in the meeting. Now, if that's your job is to take notes, then take notes. But but we all know there's this whole pecking order of the person who is asked to take notes that's sort of often looked as a power move. Well, it's relegating someone to a junior role um, and doing so in a way where it's hard for the other person to refuse because they basically have to 
uh, look like someone who's not a team player and unwilling to contribute to the success of the group, right? When someone says, I'm not going to take notes for you, it, it kind of puts them in a very tough position, right? Oh, yeah. I sat in a meeting about six months ago and I was there representing my company. And it was at the time, it was a company I was the head of. And I had an engineer there with me and he technically worked for me. And it was a big meeting with about six or seven people at the table. And he even turned to me and he said, are you taking notes for this? And yeah, I had that moment where, okay, I'm either going to just swallow it and take it but you know me, Henry. And of course, because it was my company and my meeting, at least on my side of the table, I was like, no, take your own notes. <laughs> Good for you. You know, I, I would basically, if someone asked me to take notes, I'd basically say, well, my assumption is everyone around this table is responsible for remembering what's said and done. Um, and if you can't remember what's said and done, uh, you need to take your own notes. I've definitely been asked to take notes at least three or four times in the past year alone. I've actually try, been trying to take more notes. Um, that's kind of funny. Um, I'm like in the opposite direction. I've been trying to get myself to take more notes about things because oftentimes I just rely on my memory. Yeah, I, I used to be the consummate note taker. And I, I think I'm a little bit of a nice, happy medium now. But, it, but you're right, it is interesting. And of course, Gideon, according to Terry Colby, was giving them a lot of teddy bears and hand job stories. But he really wanted to get to the bottom of what Allsafe could offer. And he was shocked when Philip Price in the limo leaving all safe said they are perfect we want to work with them yeah and kind of planting the seed that maybe uh price wanted five nine to happen um and instead of being a clueless victim may in fact have been pulling the strings as well uh so it, it's interesting and you wonder if colby's referring to some sort of payoff like if he wants them to offer him something because that seemed to be to me, at least, what he was alluding to. Yeah. And did you have any theories or thoughts about what it is exactly that is making Angela pop, and <laughs> so to speak, with Philip Price? Why is he immediately fixated with her? Is it purely an attraction? It doesn't really seem like it, does it? Maybe he had something going on with her mother, and she uh, reminds him of her mother. Uh, that's a theory. That's kind of my theory as well. And I mean, it puts a nice little bow on the whole issue. I mean, in fact, Angela could even be his daughter for all we know. And he's feeling a little bit of protectiveness around her. But you're right. It's it's all fitting into a larger plan. Uh, we see an early version of Tyrell there who's very earnest and, and worried about the choice to go with Allsafe. And he hopes it doesn't backfire. This version of Tyrell just doesn't ring true to me. Yeah, Tyrell's character as a whole is a little bit all over the place to me like he's a guy who you could see setting up bum fights for cash and at the same time he's a bit of a hacking whiz at the same time he really loves his deceased wife and son um a lot of different things going on in his character he seems almost to me like a catch-all uh for whatever the writers kind of need to happen i much prefer tyrell the way he was depicted in the first season sort of um you know we we get to see some weird quirkiness with him but he's he's mostly cold-blooded and calculating and i i just don't buy this earnest Terrell. Uh, so I, I hear you what you're in terms of what you're saying. But then we cut to the present day and we see that Terrell 
Bell is in a town car. He's in the process of being released by the FBI. He enters his empty home, but it's not empty for long. <laughs> yeah, because who shows up? It's his favorite god in making uh, and partner. Uh, you know, Mr. Robot. Uh, I didn't understand the point of him putting on the gloves, though. Did you? Yeah, well, I think it had a, a double entendre. So, um, of course, we see Mr. Robot show up at Tyrell's, and this is after we discover that Elliot awakens and sees scribbled on his mirror, they own the FBI, a message from Mr. Robot to Elliot, and Elliot snoops around and realizes that they need to get the keylogger files from Romero's computer at the FBI. When Tyrell put those gloves on. I mean, I, I thought of, well, that's what Terrell does when he wants to really beat the crap out of somebody. And then, of course, it has that double entendre quality to it for when Philip Price shows up and says, oh, I don't want to disturb anything. Oh, like there's some sort of homoerotic thing going on. Yeah, I, I could totally see that. Um, and also, maybe he doesn't want to have, scar his hands uh, because he works in the workplace. Like, I, And that very well could be it, actually. Um, I remember one time I was working out on a bag and I uh, got a little carried away and I kind of bloodied my knuckles and I had some business meetings <laughs> that week and I'd show up and I'd put my, you know, I'd put my hands on the table or something and the, I'd see people's eyes go to my hand and look at my <laughs> bloody knuckles and come back up. And I started being very aware and conscious of the other kind of interpretations that people could have. And I started hiding my hands, basically. The latex gloves probably have lots of various uses for lots of various things for Terrell. He's a pretty utilitarian guy. Having a bunch of those blue latex gloves, probably a handy thing. I think they're blue or purple. What really got Terrell wound up, though, was when Mr. Robot said, there is no big picture you're just a puppet. And that's when Terrell says, and I sort of referenced it earlier, no puppet, no puppet, you're the puppet. And I'm sure you know what that's from, right? Actually, I don't. What is it from? <laughs> that is what Cheeto said to Hillary Rodham Clinton during the debates when she called him a puppet. That was RNC candidate, I don't even like to say his name, Henry, said to Hillary Clinton, no puppet, no puppet, you're the puppet. That was his articulate response. Oh, see, uh, I try not to, not only do I not try to say his name, I try not to remember what he says. Yeah, I, I don't think there's much utility to listening to his gibberish either. It's just meant to be a distraction. That said, the book of Trump is coming. It's only a matter of time. <laughs> TM, <laughs> for sale. It's interesting that we see in a room, Philip Price, Terrell, and, and Elliot, together. And of course, everyone just sees Elliot. They don't see Mr. Robot. And I thought it was hilarious seeing how Mr. Robot was reacting to some of the things Philip Price was saying to Terrell. Like, you know, you're just, you're just a waste of space. I don't even want to like lift a finger to do anything. You're a nobody. You're just a dumb CTO. Well, he gets his comeuppance though towards the end of this scene, right? Like I love the line where, you know, Philip Price talks to Mr. Robot about being a leader. And he's like, I am a leader. And he's like, well, who's following you then, right? Where's your army? It really speaks to a lot of the subtext of this story where Philip Price says, the only reason people like you, Elliot Alderson, are allowed to succeed is because men like me allow it to happen. And that has all sorts of reverberations for our present day society, I would suggest, in just about every area of our lives, I'd say. Yeah, and it kind of made me think about the fact that if you wanted something bad to happen, like people who say 9-11 was an inside job or you know things like this, it doesn't even necessarily need to be planned. It could just be be 
a shifting of priorities, right? It's like uh, instead of running the guard rotation every 15 minutes, you run it every hour and you're basically just playing with the probabilities of things happening. And eventually, if you make the, the I guess, the environment suitable, someone like Elliot will emerge to take advantage of the opportunity that you're presenting. That's what you see all the time in, in game design. When you make video games, you give these constructed contexts. Maybe you change the rules here and there, depending on what level you're on. And then you see players do all sorts of things with your game that you never even imagined happen, and they run with it. And, you know, and I think this is sort of what Philip Price is pointing to. What do you think of Philip Price as a character? Uh, he's fairly one-dimensional to me as a character. Um, I think the writers have largely used him as a little bit of a, a prop character. There's no incentive for the audience to really care about him as a character. They haven't really tried to build much of a backstory with that character or explain his motivations to any degree. He's largely been presented as the CEO of the big bad evil corp, right? Um, and just going back to your point about uh, game design, uh, do you know who Alan Watts is? I sure do. Yeah, so I was listening to some lectures by Alan Watts the other day, and his point in this particular lecture was that the universe, in his view, is a game. Um, and that sometimes people get the wrong idea because the word game denotes something frivolous or something for amusement. But he was like, that's the wrong thing. And so if you take what he's saying and you combine it with what you're saying about game design, it's, I think it, it leads itself to think about things in a, a different way. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think about that a lot. Uh, there have been times in my life where... You know, I, I was really focused on how if you move through life, you can open doors by treating it like a game. And then, of course, I spend a lot of my time in my professional life doing design for different kinds of experience where we try to add elements that are using games to sort of uh, help people progress through whatever the digital experience is. And so there is some truth to that. And games are definitely metaphors for whole sorts of all sorts of real life situations. So it makes total sense. And then, of course, we go back to Coney Island, which was one of my favorite places that's featured in this series. I've only been to Coney Island once. It was so crowded. I've never been to a more crowded beach in my life. I mean, there were more people than grains of sand. <laughs> And it was a pretty intense place. So the fact that this is where their their lair is, uh, Elliot and Darlene, is very cool. And this is where we discover that uh, Elliot and Darlene decide they need to break into the FBI's Sentinel system, network system, because they need to get Romero's key logs, the tools that are used to look at what is being typed on a keyboard. And that helps you reconstruct a lot of stuff. And Darlene has a plan. So what do you think of Darlene? Darlene's plan to go talk to Dom. I thought it was a really stupid plan. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but I can see why it was done. Like you have this kind of thread that's been developing between Darlene and Dom through, uh, you know, throughout their interactions. Obviously, they were going to do something at some point to, uh, to wrap that up or pay that off. Uh, and I think it, it served the purposes of the plot to have Darlene be in jeopardy. Like I think you and I discussed how this was going to be used as a, a a plot device in the story, placing Darlene in jeopardy so that we care about her fate and Elliot. Yeah, and before we sort of finally see Darlene and Dom playing that out, we do get to see another scene that I love where 
probably it places a calling card for Irving, who was in the middle of a business transaction trying to sell a used car to this woman. But Elliot uses Irving's trick of getting into OnStar, the car's OnStar system, to disable the car and have it stop right in front of where Elliot is waiting for Irving. And I have to say, there have been two times now in the series that OnStar has been hacked into. And if I were OnStar, I'd be I'd be contacting the show and say, hey, you're giving us bad press here. Well, yeah. Um, but I but again, I think it's interesting to think about like the thing with Sentinel, the fact that when they mentioned this on the show, it made me start thinking about the utility of actually storing all the things that go on in the internet somewhere for later forensic use, right? Like I'm sure someone at some level of the government in some R&D facility has broached this idea and specced out the costs and the complexity of doing something like that. Uh, so uh, the fact that they bring this up and they use this to kind of create an opportunity for the hack to be reversed is interesting. And again, here, when you're talking about the, you know, the possible technology, I think it's interesting as well. Because you know, autonomous cars, it seems like we're hearing about more and more of the news every day. And you can imagine the value of an exploit that allow you to select an autonomous vehicle once it has one inside and allow, make it crash into the side of a road or something. Oh, yeah. I mean, it has huge implications and extremely timely implications as well. And I, I thought it was cool. So Elliot gets in the car and just as Irving is putting duct tape on the Bluetooth speaker sensors that OnStar uses to listen in on, on what's going on, Elliot announces that he is going to initiate what turns out to be potentially a bogus stage three of the whole um, multi-phase attack. And Irving's like, what? So this is where Elliot tries to reclaim his time. I thought it was pretty funny that people were getting so tripped up on terminology, right? <laughs> There's a phase three. Oh, my God. What, what is this phase three? It's like it breaks their brain, you know, like as if a plot ever ends when you think it ends. Like what we're seeing in politics with Trump uh, and administration in Russia, like just because you thought it ends doesn't mean it actually ends. Yeah, no kidding. They have multiple competing phases planned and maybe not planned and just spontaneously to take advantage of it. But I thought it was funny the way people were like, stage three? I mean, th this is supposed to be the dark army, not you know, the Microsoft campus. <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's like, what? There are only supposed to be two stages. You mean there's a third stage? Oh my God, some people need to die. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, okay. I mean, it's important to figure out where this is going, but it shouldn't break anyone's brains. So in the meantime, while there's a Joey Badass song playing in the background at the bar, Darlene is having drinks with Dom, and she's trying to use an RFID scanner to scan Dom's FBI badge, which Dom is inexplicably wearing in the bar. I, I mean, I, Dom is awkward, I guess, at love and personal relationships, and Darlene, to me, is equally awkward at the whole seduction slash spy bit. Like, just really amateur hour right like you're gonna sleep with her and then her safe is in her bed and you think she's not gonna notice you punching in digits into her safe that makes noise like what that makes no sense to me like drug her you know like she should have drugged her. It's Yeah, I mean, especially because Dom announced rather conveniently that she's a light sleeper. And I have to say, I mean, Darlene looked really rough, I thought. I mean, not to cast aspersions, but Darlene doesn't look like she's slept in days. She looked really, 
unkempt. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think Darlene thought through bringing her A game to the table, so to speak, but it didn't really seem to matter because Dom was there for it. Now, some people were saying that Dom was purposely playing Darlene. Did you get that sense at all? Uh, I thought that there was that possibility because she did. Dom seemed did seem very well informed of the legality of her actions, right? When she was talking to her boss, she's like, I didn't break any rules by doing this. So, you know, it seems like there was a little bit of uh, premeditated thought into the ramifications of this, you know, and maybe that's just because she'd been fantasizing about Darlene and trying to justify it to herself. I'm not sure. Yeah, Dom, I don't want to think that Dom or Darlene are as dumb as they both appear. So if if you had to make up a couple name for them, so Domlene, we come to probably one of my favorite scenes in this whole episode is when Elliot runs into Angela, who is now gone off the deep end. She's she's really upset. I don't know if she's really upset because of all the people who died or if she feels that her plan is not coming to fruition or what she was told. If she's having some kind of cognitive dissonance. I don't really know what it is, but whatever it is, Leon, who's smoking on some trees, is not having any of it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, and here we kind of see the what's been kind of underlying some of the fragility uh, that we've noticed in her character. Uh, you know, there's always this kind of hints about the fact that she may have had some mental issues in the past. But here we kind of see her in the midst of her full-blown psychosis. And it doesn't seem like the first time. Like some of the stuff that she's doing seems like things that she's returning to rather than just making up for the first time. Yeah, and Leon is just cuts to the chase and he says, she's got to go one way or another. So he probably would have had no issues killing her if he had to, but he really would rather not. I mean, Leon is extremely utilitarian and he's essentially just a mover. And so he knows that probably rule number one for him is just be on time. No complications, be on time. And Angela is a complicated So eventually Leon takes Elliot to meet with the Dark Army. So that's in play. And then then we kind of cut back and forth between Mr. Robot, Philip and Terrell, where Philip Price is explaining his whole worldview to them. And I get so sick of hearing Philip Price talk. Well, I mean, he's the mouthpiece of corporate interest, right? Like he is kind of corporate evil personified. He's blah, 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 blah. And I guess there was some strategy to having Terrell be CTO because I know you predicted last week that Terrell would be CEO and that could still happen. And as much as Philip tried to tell Terrell, you're, you're just a, you're just a ridiculous figurehead that I inherited from a deal gone wrong. Terrell refuses to really hear that and says, there's no shame you fired me, sir. And I wish that Terrell had delivered it more crazy and delusional that he did. I think he could have delivered it in much more sort of gaslighting kind of way that would have meant Philip toe-to-toe, but he didn't. I think Terrell as CEO is going to be a a tension point in the upcoming season. I think Price being pushed out and Terrell being part of the plot uh, to push him out is going to be something explored further. I think so too, because I think that while Philip is posturing and saying, you know, I'm coming here to you, Terrell, out of respect, we know Philip doesn't really respect him or anyone else for that matter. And I think this is just a way for Philip to tell, show Terrell or start posturing because 
Philip has to smell blood in the water as far as he's concerned as well. Oh, sure. I mean, he's basically trying to intimidate the incoming CTO with his power. Uh, but roles have powers of their own, especially in a corporate entity. And everything about Evil Corp, uh, as depicted in the show, speaks a corporate entity focused on rules and profit. And so just by virtue of being in the CTO position, Terrell is going to have power that threatens price. And while that's all happening, or we switch to Dom and Darlene, and they're back at Dom's apartment. And you're right, this is where this, this seduction happens. And of course, not without a product placement for Amazon Echo. So we got to see the Mr. Robot Amazon Echo skill called the Daily 5-9 in action. And it was completely integrated into the story. And I have to admit, I thought that was a pretty good piece of product placement. And then there was a fake product placement because apparently E-Corp is, is further profiting from what happened to 5.9 by selling prep kits that Dom, of course, immediately bought. Uh, and I think the way that I'm going to refer to the two as a couple will be Dumb and Dumber um, because <laughs> there's Dom and there's Dumber. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because this is where we saw that whole exchange where they they kind of get together. Dom's a light sleeper. She's asleep. And Darlene does a pretty cool safe hack, I must admit. But she's just so desperate and... Then Dom, of course, immediately is on to her, takes her into the FBI. We see Angela at home, her beautiful apartment transformed to nothing but a, a silly aspirational poster, the book Lolita by Nabokov, and I guess images of the people who might have died in, in the explosions. I guess so. And so maybe uh, the fact that White Rose showed that book was a sign that he understood her uh, psychosis or he was trying to feed her some information that somehow played into her delusions. Mm -hmm. And then we see Leon uh, drop Elliot off with Mr. Wang or Dr. Wang, who's having none of it with Elliot, tells him to shut up. I thought this was a beautiful scene where they go up this, this beautiful set of stairs. And of course, this is where Elliot meets with Grant and the Dark Army goes through his laptop. And this is where Elliot tells Grant that he wants to get rid of eCoin. That's what phase three is. And this is Elliot's basically his whole attempt to try to get into the Dark Army system. Yeah, I mean, the entire conversation was... Uh, beside the point, like for him, it was really about finding a route to infect the Dark Army's computer uh, for as part of his hack. And it, to me, is one of the instances of the show that don't really play true to life. Like the Dark Army, which is a sophisticated hacking organization, would not stick a USB into a really sophisticated hacker's computer and then stick it into a non-sandbox computer. It seemed rather far-fetched. And, you know, it was one of those few times in the series, and there were quite a few of them in this particular episode where I had to suspend disbelief. Like one of them, like I said, was Dom having her FBI badge, just hanging out there at some random bar. And you're right that the Dark Army was so vulnerable for Elliot to, who already has this sort of messiah complex, it seems, on a lot of levels, to just make it so easy for him. Uh, you just have to wonder. Uh, and then, of course, the whole way that 
uh, Dom was experiencing Santiago when she brought Darlene in for further questioning. It just it just smells rotten, and I think that uh, that Santiago's days are are definitely numbered. Yeah, and the thought struck me that maybe Dom is using Darlene as part of a uh, an attempt to root out Santiago um, and make a case against him. I would make a case against him too because he's so rude and the way he uses anger and he admonishes Dom every time she raises interesting or important questions just to sort of uh, bully her into into shutting up. I can't wait till he gets his comeuppance. And then we have this interesting scene where we see White Rose and Grant. They are fully having a major makeout session after Grant told her what he thought about Elliot and that it was time to get rid of Elliot. And finally, White Rose says, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's time Elliot goes the way of his father. What did you think about that interaction? And I have a, I've heard theories about this scene, and I just wanted to ask you what you thought first before I tell you what I heard. So to me, like both this scene and the one preceding it uh, with Darlene, Santiago, and Dom kind of give hints about what the last episode will will be about and what sort of uh, tension points the show's creators and writers are building up to. So Dom, Santiago, and Darlene, it, I think Darlene's way out will be through Santiago. Either he'll threaten her and, and Dom will kill him, and then some sort of trade will be made that will allow Darlene to go free. So I think Darlene's going to be in jeopardy, and I think Elliot now, in this scene, is the one being placed in jeopardy uh, because now he is seen as a threat to White Rose and the Dark Army. Uh, but I didn't really know what to make of the interactions between White Rose and Grant here. What, what What's the theories that you heard? What I did see is, is there are a lot of people who are wondering if White Rose and Grant in this instantiation or this representation, if they are somewhere in the future and from the future. So there are people, I, I saw some comment on Twitter where they took a screenshot of White Rose in the form of Minister Zhang and then White Rose as White Rose in the scene with Grant. And they swore that they purposely aged female White Rose, that she had a fuller face in the last scene. And so people are trying to theorize that that representation of White Rose comes from a different timeline or a different position in time. What do you think about that? It's interesting. You know, the music was definitely unusual, the way that the woman was playing the wine glasses to provide music. It doesn't, as far as I know, that's not a thing with the rich and powerful in this timeline. <laughs> so uh, it kind of bespeaks a certain, some elsewhere that may be present for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems plausible. I, I, for one, keep rejecting the time travel theory outright. It's just inst instinctually, I really don't want that to be the case. But there are lots of folks who are, are postulating that theory. So I'm, I'm pretty excited for the season finale. I definitely think they've not made it easy to guess where things are going compared to the last season where people sort of had everything figured out, I thought, ahead of time. Do you think anyone dies in the uh, in the next episode? And if so, who? <laughs> 
A lot of people are betting it's going to be Darlene. That's where all the bets are going. I sort of, uh, it could be Angela. I think Dom and Santiago are likely to die. I can see that those two characters being written out of the show. You've been really good about guessing so far. So I, I wouldn't put it past the show's creators. To me, it feels like Dom and, I mean, to me, it feels like Darlene and Angela are too central to die, but it would still hurt to lose Dom. And yeah, I could see that happening for sure. So if any of you listeners would like to write us at the hello friend podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear what your thoughts are about the episode that we just discussed or the season finale, which is in just a few short days. Do you have time, Henry, for us to play? Which would you choose? Sure. And uh, just to remind the readers, which would you choose is a game that Elliot and Darlene used to play on their card trips where they'd ask each other to make very tough decisions between two choices. Uh, So we're playing that game here. And this week's which would you choose, Margaret, is real Christmas trees or fake? (laughs) Oh, definitely real Christmas trees all the way. Environment be darned. So I went today to get a Christmas tree, a real one. Uh, And the the, in, the whole situation and scene just turned me s- off so much that I just decided at the spot that I was going to get a fake Christmas tree. Was it very hectic or people were ve- being very pushy? Uh, it was just like one, it was in, in Bayshore and kind of bordering this homeless encampment. And there was this sign as I'm getting out of the car, like that someone had spray painted on the, the thing. It's like, I'm tired of being hungry, eat the rich, you know? And on the other side of the fence, there were like homeless people camped out, but you couldn't see them because it was the kind of metal chain link fence and they had allowed shrubbery to grow up the side. So it kind of formed this vegetative barrier, right? But you could see through the gaps that there's, you know, a homeless, a large homeless encampment on the other side of this fence. And we go go there and, you know, there are essentially these trees being sold for 80, 90, $120 a pop. And then you start thinking through like, okay, like all these trees are cut down from somewhere, brought here. Uh, you know, they, they're, 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 uh, they're uh, something that you keep in your house for a certain length of time and they're gone, you know, and for what? Right. And I think I just had this like moment where I just decided like, I don't want to have to do this every year. Well, I think that you made the right decision and I think you did a good job of describing the techno dystopia that is San Francisco 2017. I mean, for real, right? Because you're yeah. going, you're going to look at these trees that cost like hundreds of dollars, and there's homeless people and panhandlers, and because it's a nice weather Sunday, a few weeks before Christmas, it's like everyone had this idea to go get Christmas trees today. It seemed, and so as we got there, it started to get more and more busy, and all this activity kind of descending on this small little corner of uh, Southeast San Francisco. And I don't know, something about it just really turned me off. Like I just decided, like I don't want to, I don't want to put my money into this type of enterprise. Well, I think that's a fair thing. I mean, the ideal thing, of course, would be to have a tree that I guess is either growing outside, but we live in the city. And I have seen those trees that you can buy that you can plant once you're finished with them. But then the question becomes, where does one plant the tree if you live in the city? So (laughs) it's true. I mean, people think just planting a tree anywhere is good. But the problem is if the tree takes root and starts getting bigger, 
there's all sorts of ramifications for pipes and for and other things. Like it's not a decision to be made lightly. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to plant the tree near the Millennium Tower, for example, which is already tilting 16 inches to the northwest and has cracks in the foundation. Which for those of you who are not local, there's a giant skyscraper luxury apartment building in downtown San Francisco called the Millennium Tower. And it was built on sand. <laughs> and you know, with the Salesforce Tower going up and some of the other projects announced, I just wonder about the structural soundness of that area. Um, I'm not an engineer, but it, it does give me pause. I think it's terrifying. And, you know, even though they say the newer structures are built into bedrock, I have to wonder the speed with which these buildings are going up. In fact, Henry, the garage across the street from where I live is going to be destroyed any day now for another skyscraper to go up right in the same area. So yeah, and you know, let let people don't forget that uh, the Bay Bridge renovation project before it even ended, they found cracks. Right. Yeah. So they spent a bunch of money to try to make the Bay Bridge seismically sound. And before they had even officially uh, like launched the bridge for public use, there was already cracks in the columns. Like that's just crazy. It sure is. If you had one word to describe this episode, what would it be? Payoff. Because? I feel like there was a payoff for a lot of different threads that had been developing in the show with Darlene and Dom, uh, with Angela and all the hints about her mental illness and her fragility, uh, you know, with, uh, yeah, just with Terrell and Price and Mr. Robot and Elliot. Felt like a lot of different setups that had been laid down by the writers over the past season and a half have kind of paid off in this episode. That's a good one. My word would be duh. There were a lot of duh moments that I found throughout this episode. We covered them pretty well. Angela, well, I just think she's a big duh. I think I think she was brainwashed. And I think what you're seeing is the breaking down of the person who has been brainwashed and convinced to do really horrendous things. And she can't really withstand that pressure. And she's still a little bit deluded. Of course, Dom and Darlene, <laughs> Dumb and Dumber, Dumb and Dumber. You're right. Uh, so there were a lot of these moments where I'm like, really? But overall, great episode. I'm really excited. We're going to cover the end of the season very soon. And thanks to the listeners. You guys have been awesome. The Hello Friend podcast at gmail.com is how to reach us with any questions. Please do rate, review, and subscribe to us if you want to. Thanks, Henry. It's been great chatting with you. Oh, and one final note, Margaret, uh, and that just occurred to me is Angela, I wonder if in her past she'd been used to bring down someone powerful uh, by making an accusation of sexual impropriety. Uh, maybe the former CEO of uh, Evil Corp, maybe that's how he was pushed out. Um, hence the kind of fixation on Lolita and Price's fixation on her as an adult. There is something to that. I agree. All of those connections seem ripe for exploring. And, you know, like last season, we had the Red Wheelbarrow book. Maybe this season we'll get Irving's book, The Beach towel <laughs> and we'll discover some of these answers in that publication if it ever comes sounds good margaret i'll talk to you next week okay time to go be a corporate puppet i'll talk to you soon henry who's a puppet <laughs> <laughs> no puppet bye nope. bye <laughs>